0: Welcome back to the newest episode of the Mysteria podcast. I am Marcus Da Silva and today's show is, I am very excited. I've been uh, giddy all week uh, to talk to my guest today. Uh, So before I introduce him, I wanna read uh, the back cover of one of the several books that he's written and we'll get into that later on in the podcast. So here we go. During the Vietnam War, A secret war was fought across the fence in Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam, unknown to the media or to the public under the aegis of the Military Assistance Command, Vietnam's top secret studies and observations group. SOG's chain of command for missions and after action reports extended to the White House and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Small Green Beret led teams ran missions into Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam without assistance from conventional artillery, tank, or infantry units. Once on the ground, their sole support was provided by Air Force Tactical Air and Helicopter Units, U.S. Army and Marine Helicopter Aviation Personnel and Air Crews, and from the South Vietnam Air Force's 219th Special Operations Squadron, codenamed King Bees. In Laos, the the Communists dedicated 50,000 troops to the Ho Chi Minh Trail, including highly trained sappers, from the 305th Sapper Battalion, its sole mission to attack SOG teams. And today I'm joined by one of the many one zeros from those SOG teams, uh, Mr. John Stryker Meyer, also known as Tilt, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Welcome, Uh, thank you, sir. And I'm wearing my official King B hat. Absolutely, gotta represent them. Oh,
1: absolutely, yeah, they're my heroes.
0: Uh, putting it lightly i guess right
1: indeed we're live today our, our recon team survived all those missions thanks many times to the king bees and other aviation units yes sir
0: and so i came across you from listening to jocko podcast i've been a listener uh i think i started listening to jocko around episode 10 and i i then have since gone back and listened through the, the the nine episodes that I missed, and I've been listening <laughs> ever since then. And I remember when I was listening uh, to the podcast that you first appeared on, and I was playing basketball uh, just at the house here, just shooting shooting some uh, hoops, and had it on the had it on the earphones and there i i actually had to stop playing because i just could not believe what i was hearing uh on this podcast and fortunately you then appeared on seven more episodes and you were joined by guests as well and now you have your own podcast uh called sogcast and i've been burning through that all week uh so it was uh pretty cool um in, in preparation for this and uh yeah, I mean, it's just, we're going to get into a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I know I'm, I'm trying to contain my excitement because it's just this is very, very, very cool for me to be here right now. Um,
1: well, thank you. I appreciate the- it. Uh, thank you for doing your homework.
0: <laughs> I do my best. I do my best. Indeed. Thank you. And so I think uh, just to kind of provide a little bit of context before we we get into the, the nitty gritty, uh, just tell us how you ended up in Vietnam in the first place. Yeah.
1: uh, 1966, I flunked out of college. I read the book, The Green Berets. I said, if I go, I want to go with these guys. So long story short, enlisted in the Army, went through basic advanced infantry training, jump school, special forces training. Then after that, which ended in December of 1967, uh, we went to some extra radio teletype training with top secret background training And then we landed in Vietnam at the end of April 1968, had in-country training for three weeks, did everything from learning how different kind of helicopters were in use, everything but the King Beasts. They didn't tell (laughs) us about the King bees. And uh, uh, learned how to do direct airstrikes, survival, first aid, combat wounds, things like that. And then uh, we volunteered for SOG, did the top secret uh, briefing in Da Nang, and uh, we learned about the secret war, signed the... Uh, non-disclosure agreements, so we could not talk about anything in SAG at that for 20 years. If we did, we'd be prosecuted for it. And then from there, we went up to FOB1, FUBI, and um, we had the introduction to the uh, secret war. We got the helicopter. Our recon team got on, Spike Team Idaho, two Americans, and uh, five or six indigenous troops, and they still remain missing today. So there was an instant opening, they were wiped out. There was an opening in, uh, for the recon company at FOB1. And I signed up on a team, Robert uh, J. Spider-Parks was the new one zero. Don Wolken became the assistant team leader and I was the radio operator. And, was, and at that point we had several teams wiped out in addition to Idaho and it was only May 1968. And of course, just for a contemporary peg on that, The team leader, Glenn Lane, and Bob Owen, who was his assistant team leader, American Two Green Berets. They're amongst two of the 50 Green Berets that are still listed as missing in action today in Southeast Asia from the Vietnam War.
0: You know, in going through and reading your books and listening to all those podcasts, uh, especially being Canadian, too, I mean, I, I think we have a different perspective on you know just the military and and war in general just because we don't happen to be involved in a lot of conflict at least not primarily you know we'll go in and support but um it just blows my mind the the intensity of what you. i mean that's like the understatement of the year but the intensity of what you guys were doing and the the age like you guys were all so young and you're going in and it's just unbelievable i mean
1: yeah, we, we, you know, at the time, you don't think about it. It's kind of like you, when you go to serve, you want to get in the best unit, which was Special Forces. And then they have this project that's top sheet. You can't talk about it. And uh, uh, that was literally the tip of the spear at the time. So we went in and tried to do the best we could. Young and dumb.
0: <laughs> Sometimes that works out well, too, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And so when you first, uh, so I guess right before you got approached to volunteer for SOG, because yeah. um, it's top secret. So how did that, how, what was your introduction to, to SOG?
1: Well, we had that briefing, you know, um, after, at the end of the in-country training, they asked for volunteers. So, and the volunteers were for SOG, but they didn't tell you what it was. And we didn't learn until we had the briefing and we signed the non-disclosure agreements. And so that um, then we were locked in and then they explained it. They had a map of Southeast Asia and Vietnam was just all the regular cities. I-Corps, which is top two core, three core, four core. And then there's the border. Laos had target boxes. Cambodia had target boxes in it. And and the Sergeant Major goes, welcome to the secret war. This is what this is what our mission is. We go across the fence and uh, see what the enemy's up to.
0: And at that point, I imagine you were probably pretty excited.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Pucker factor was minus zero, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, and what they failed to tell us was, and they, and they may not have known it at the time, but at the end, SOG had the highest casualty rate in the entire war.
0: And did they so tell it was you what the was? Going against it was?
1: the NBA. And uh, they, we paid a, a stern price for it.
0: And from, I can't remember the, the specific figure, but the casualty rate was over a hundred percent, correct?
1: Right. And the way that works is um, like men like Bob Howard, who received the, he was, he received the Medal of Honor. He was put in for 11 Purple Hearts. And that's a combat wound. He had to received eight. And there are several, a lot of our SAG guys always had multiple uh, Purple Heart awards and decorations.
0: So basically, you're you're guaranteed by the by the numbers, you're essentially guaranteed to be shot, you know, wounded or or killed.
1: Right, shot, wounded, shrapnel, and and then you know just operational uh, hazards coming out on a rope, a 150 foot piece of rope, with a helicopter and getting shot and dragging you through the trees. We had some men that got knocked out and were never recovered. They're still amongst the missing today. Others that were shot and killed while they were in the harness. And, uh, it's just all part of the, uh, the, the, battle.
0: Yeah. Craziness. Uh, so I'm trying to think where to start first, but, um, I think how about actually we'll do this. Uh, one of the things that, uh, and I like the way that you put it in, this is from on the ground and just one of my, you know, obviously talking about leadership and, and what, always uh, and and before the podcast you were we were just briefly discussing uh, some of your guests you know past and and future that you have coming up and and you said that yeah you know the problem with these guys is they're so modest and generally you know I'd say that's an excellent trait that you find amongst leaders is that humility that modesty um, and one of my favorite leadership lessons from the the several books that you've written is um, I'll just read this exact quote because I, I just love the way that you state it. Um, and this is the one zero uh, that's being referred to uh, was Pat Watkins here, but uh, just to read out this this quote, in accordance with the time-honored tradition, the one zero's feet were the last to leave the killing ground. Uh, and then in this case, it was of Oscar eight. Um, so first of all, you know, maybe just describe again, you know, what what does one zero mean? Because... We're a bunch of civilians on this podcast, so we have to <laughs> translate. Um, but you know, the ones, what what is the one zero? What's their role? And uh, we'll just kind of go from there.
1: Yeah. Um, well, at that time, uh, the sequel War went on from 1964 to 1972, and uh, one of the key um, tactical weapons we had to deploy across the fence in Laos, Cambodia, and sometimes North Vietnam for down pilots was to see what the enemy was up to. That was our job, was to go in and see. Sometimes it'd be an area reconnaissance, point reconnaissance, uh, a wiretap, try to capture a a prisoner of war. We had Air Force sensors that we inserted sometimes along the trail and the Air Force could monitor what was going down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And then of course, bomb damage assessments. And then the, uh, the other mission that we ran was called a bright light. So if a recon team was in trouble, had wounded or KIAs, killed in action, or downed pilots, our job would be to go in with a recon team, be six to eight men. And we would go in heavily armed for a bright light, one uh, canteen of water, the rest would be all ammo, ammo, weapons, hand grenades, bandages and body bags to pick up the and bring back the dead if we could. And uh, so the primary uh task was the recon teams which would be led by green berets and it would be two or three green berets with an, a balancing number of indigenous troops and that could be chinese Nungs who had grown up in, in the chinese part of, of uh south vietnam very good outstanding recon men and then we have Montagnard tribesmen cambodians and in, my, and in my case we had south vietnamese team members and uh, four, at least four of the men on our team had come from North Vietnam in 1954. And their families, they came south with their families because they didn't want to live there under the thumb of communism. And uh, once, like when I got there and met these guys and talked to them, they all admitted that they knew um, their government in South Vietnam, our ally was corrupt and there were issues. And, uh, but they preferred living with a corrupt government they knew, as opposed to being under the thumb of communism. And, and they were willing to die for that. So the recon teams, in our case, uh, early on, it'd be three Americans, and then three or five South Vietnamese. And we had to rebuild the team, the team got wiped out in May of 1968, spider parks, rebuilt us. And, uh, he worked with uh, Sal, who was our Vietnamese counterpart, and then Hep was the interpreter, Nguyen Kong Hep. And those were the two key people we wrapped around. They fought, they hired uh, four or five South Vietnamese that came on the team. Three were 15 years old. And um, within, within a couple of months, Son was running point for us. He learned quick, was, uh, was good on with his hands and uh, fearless. And, these, and, they, and our team was very uh, fortunate, we ran a lot of missions and uh, we never, the team was never wiped out again for the, for the remainder of the sequel war. So in answer to your question, uh, we needed to have teams that went across the fence to see what the enemy was doing. The recon team was the primary. So there, um, there's code name for the team leader would be the one zero, assistant team leader would be the one one, the radio operator would be the one two. And then our counterpart, Sal would be zero one, because he would be the Vietnamese team leader on the team. So uh, Hep was the interpreter, and then Tuon was our Grenadier. And then uh, we had Phuc, who was from North Vietnam, and he was uh, he was our point man. And South, so if we had a six-man formation, later on I got to the point, our South Vietnamese were so good that it was just myself and another American with four South Vietnamese, and so we'd have Fook would be running point, and then later Son Sal would be behind him. Then it would be me, another South Vietnamese, and then John uh, John Shore or Lynn Black, somebody else, the assistant team leader, that would be on the tail.
0: What I thought was so <laughs> fascinating about the uh, SOG units, <clears throat> primarily with the uh, indigenous. Forces whom you affectionately refer to as the little people. Uh, oh indeed. Annoying. You look at the pictures,
1: um, I mean, like I'm head, I'm head and shoulders above these folks. But the size didn't measure their valor.
0: And that's what was so amazing to me is is the the as you mentioned, the the fearlessness and their fierce loyalty to you guys. Absolutely. Really incredible. And uh,
1: I was really um, you know, some, some people criticize the South Vietnamese, but on our team, we never had that issue. Our little people were just wonderful. Um, you know, Sal and Hep, by the time I arrived there in May of 1968, they've been in the war for, secret war for two and a half years already. And fortunately, when the team got wiped out, there was a rotation of personnel that would go on missions. And on that mission where the team got wiped out in 68, they, they were not on the rotation. And so we were able to rebuild the team with two veteran uh, Vietnamese. And of course, Spider Parks had run several missions with Glenn Lane. And so he really knew uh, a lot of tricks of the trade. So we were fortunate, again, to rebuild, have time to do the training, emergency, uh, you know, the uh, media action drills and things like that. And, um, um, you know, our, our little people, Sal, Hep, Fook. And then we had um, two on was our Grenadier. And then we hired Chow, Cal, and uh, Son. They were all 15 when we hired them. And then we also had a couple additional team members who had been on the team. <clears throat> Men who um, he never went out on a mission with us, but he had been on a team for a while. And when we had in-country training and missions like that, he would go out there. But, uh, you know, Sal would pick who would go out and we would talk about so I would go, I'd like folk Cal and whoever to come on this mission. And I go, okay, because that's the way we worked. And then I, of course, would have the American, uh, the other American, and we had team members. So we got to know each other, uh, both tactically and back at base through all the training during the monsoon seasons, you had to do duty and base filling sandbags, getting ready, all the, uh, boring stuff that goes on in camp. And and the training never ended. If it wasn't raining, we'd be out training, either doing rappelling, practicing rope extractions, all the immediate reaction drills, uh, learning how to put together uh, ambushes with Claymore mines, which are anti-personnel mines. And, of course, putting in the uh, Air Force sensors, as well as doing wiretaps, things like that.
0: And when you're referring to uh one of the things that just kind of popped into my mind when when you mentioned, you know, like the tricks of the trade from being out and one of the things uh I can't remember which I mean it's it's mentioned multiple times, but uh attaching like uh phosphorus grenades to to the would it be to the claymores or to like as an extra we little that,
1: we only did that a couple of times because it's such a dangerous maneuver, but uh <laughs> <clears throat> one time in particular we had been engaged in really uh brutal combat for uh, over an hour. It was getting close to dark and we knew this was the only chance to get out. So the helicopters came with the rope, dropped them down, we all hooked up and Bubba Shore put together the claymore with the white phosphorus in front of it with a time fuse. So the plan was for us to leave and hoping we'd be high enough so when that exploded, the impact of the white phosphorus would not get to us. And the recon guides worked uh, worked with us that day. And uh, we were able to see the enemy lit up as we're, as we're pulling out on the strings.
0: So I want to kind of, uh, this nice <clears throat> little segue into it. So I want to start kind of getting into a little bit of, of the nitty gritty when it comes to uh, some of the missions that you ran. Um, but first, I, I also just to like, for the audience to understand like, it's just everything about this is just so unbelievable, and and when you read the stories, I was mentioning to you prior to to recording, like you read it and then you go, okay, and then you read it again, and you're like, no, I I got that right the first. Like you just can't understand how any I like it's you must be thinking too, like how anybody made it out alive is. Okay,
1: oh, I mean, let's not have any confusion. The only by the grace of the Lord. I, I don't understand it to this day. Particularly, we look at the Green Berets like uh, Glenn Lane, who was the one zero on the team when it got wiped out. Extraordinary Green Beret. And many men like him, senior Green Berets that have been in for 10 years, they're fearless, um, and they and they volunteer for SOG. And when we lost them, uh, it, was, it was psychologically difficult, but it's like, hey, we got to keep going in their tradition. You know, and... and um, Another example that when we went through training group, we were trained on uh, on uh, Morse code, and we had the combo training. And uh, our the staff sergeant, or sergeant first class that worked with us was a guy named uh, sergeant first class Phil uh, Paul Bill Rosa, classic guy. He had been in the three times. He worked with us on nights on the weekends so we could pass the comma. Well. At the end of our top secret briefing, briefing in May of 1968, we signed a non-disclosure agreement. We learned that one of the first KIAs killed in action in early 1968, while we were doing additional training, was Paul Villarosa, our hero, the man who helped us all become Green Berets. And a man that we held in such high esteem was killed. Not only was he killed, he was tortured and they burn his body with a flamethrower just to have an additional psychological impact on us. And uh, so that was a kind of mental games, things we had to overcome as we we got into the war. And um, no, we were against a uh, a communist dictatorship, which we're seeing today unfold in the Ukraine. They don't care about people. I mean, what they want is power and, uh, And that's what they wanted then. And uh, that's what led to the uh, extreme measures that we came up against in the field. They they had uh, trackers and sappers that over time they trained and their sole mission was to find our teams in the field to kill the Americans because they would get a killed American award and leave the indigenous alive. So they could go back for psychological impact in the, uh, on the teams and That happened a few times. And uh, so we're up against a very tenacious enemy. And they had, I'm told by 1970, they had over two battalions, which would be over 3000 men trained solely to track SOG recon teams in Laos and Cambodia.
0: Well, and and I I guess in speaking to that, as far as the gear that you guys carried into the field, there was a, I guess, in case of emergency, uh, grenade or, or and or a pistol that you guys would carry um, in addition to the regular gear. And what was the purpose of, of that?
1: Well, we always carried, um, all the Americans carried the CAR-15 except for our Grenadier who would carry an M79. That's a grenade launcher, 40 millimeter grenade launcher. And then we Americans always carried a sawed off M79. So we'd have, in my case, have 600 plus rounds for the car 15. And that's a modified M16. They had a collapsible stock and a shorter barrel. And then we cut down the M79 because that's firepower. That's a grenade launcher. It has a very effective and uh, uh, it gave us an extra leg up on the enemy. And then the hand grenades. We always carry at least 10 to 12 hand grenades. They're anti-personnel in nature. The other team members would carry claymore mines occasionally. We carry a 22 uh silencer, a 22 standard silent with a silencer on it to shoot dogs or to uh cripple a uh a POW not kill them, but just to cripple them and shoot him in the leg or something like that so we could bring them back for interrogation. So that was the, the equipment we carried later. Some of the guys began carrying machine guns, particularly the RPD, which was the. Uh, Soviet machine gun and they would cut the barrel down and again try to make it as light as possible to carry but it gave the teams extra firepower.
0: And was the attitude at least amongst the the American soldiers in in those units um, basically we understand that we are not going to be taken alive by the NVA at least?
1: Oh yeah my last hand grenade is right up here. And that was always the last one I used. And I knew that, and Johnny McIntyre and I came to an agreement on that when we first landed, which was we knew how brutal and vicious and inhumane the communists are then and now today. Uh, It hasn't changed then. They may paint the pig a different color, but it's still a communist. And we just said, I'm not going to be a POW. And if we go, we're going to try to take as many of these commie dogs with us as we can. Fortunately, we never got to that point in time.
0: Yeah. And, and with the, uh, with sawing off your own shotguns, that was sort of experimental too, as well, right?
1: (laughs) Right. Some of our guys carried shotguns sawed off. I liked the 40 millimeter because we, uh, the first round that we carried when we were on patrol had flechettes or, um, double odd buckshot. So if anything was close, it was effective and deadly. And then we go back and use it for launching the uh, high explosive rounds during uh, combat.
0: And so now you're you're in Vietnam. You've landed. You understand what it is that you're there to do. Uh, what was your first mission that you went out on?
1: Well, we had a few practice missions. We did night ambushes locally, and we had a, a mission where we went out. East of the Asheville Valley was one of our primary target areas because the Ho Chi Minh Trail was a a series of trails that came south from North Vietnam, with trails that were coming to South Vietnam, and they would bring in supplies, troops, um, weapons, things like that. And um, our first mission, official mission was in the Asheville Valley, we put in Air Force sensors along the trail and then we put another one in by a uh, case the histo- where they had that historic siege in earlier 1968 and uh, the marine corps had a base there but we also had an fob3 where we were still doing top secret missions across the fence as well as local patrols for security and uh, i had three or four missions under my belt in spite of prox was teasing me like you've had these missions you haven't even earned the combat infantry badge which you earn that when you were in a firefight with the enemy. And so I had been on three or four missions, no contact to warrant getting the awarded that. And then on uh, October 7th, we made contact for four hours. And we, I went through all the rounds and we left on the lamp magazine with the last hand grenade as, we, as a king bee, the South Vietnamese Air Force, king bee, yes, sir, my king bees. <laughs> they pulled us out at last light. And that helicopter had 48 bullet holes in it. By the time they got back, the next day, he the pilot counted all the holes in his helicopter. And,
0: and that's the thing that is very difficult to understand is the intensity of the firefights that you guys got into, the duration, and the determination of the enemy was just it's hard, like fanatical doesn't really describe it. Like it's it's more, it was just so beyond that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, um, they earned our respect. You had to respect the enemy that determined. And again, you'd look at it from their side. They were told, we're going to go to war today. You're going to do this. And if they didn't, the NVA would kill them. So there was a limited, uh, limited uh, options. <laughs> Once you're in, you're in. And mm-hmm. if you didn't do what they told you, well, you got a choice. I can kill you or you can go try to kill the American and become a hero. And uh, maybe I'm overstating that a little bit. But also, like you said, um, on these missions, uh, since Jocko's podcast, and, and if anybody watches Jocko podcast, like 180, 181, 182, there's a couple times when Jocko goes, he just stops with the interview and goes, you did what? because he was surprised you know and I'll never forget the one we talked about Thanksgiving Day we had Claymore mines with a five second fuse we're in a firefight with the enemy they're pursuing us we're holding them back to get to an LZ for a helicopter to come in and we had Claymore mines with a five second fuse so that the enemy would run into it and that would slow them down and give us enough time to get to the LZ to get extracted on Thanksgiving Day 1968 and over time, they've gone back to talk to Jocko. You know, there's other podcasters today that are high, are doing a great job, like Jack Carr, um, Sean Ryan, uh, Andy Stumpf, and now um, we have Michael Michael Glover, who's a Green Beret from Delta Force history. Spent a little time in the agency, and these all these guys are doing it. Everyone that I've talked to, I've been interviewed by most now, and at some point, these go. You know the stuff you guys did, you wouldn't even get past your initial briefing because today's command structure is so risk-averse. And uh, I can see why, but on the other hand, there's some kind of a, a, little, a little bit of a disappointment to that. At least if we're going to go to war, let's go to war. And the, uh, anyway, the officer's corps, maybe just have a little bit too much say and sway. But in our day, the uh the one zero in my case, I became the one zero. I still just only an E4. You begin to rank at E one private, private E E two, and then a private first class is E three. And then I was an E four when I became a one zero. And so here I am, a twenty-two-year-old kid, um, directing millions of dollars of air assets on a top secret mission to find out what the Congress were doing in the layouts in Cambodia.
0: Yeah, that makes that- sense. Yeah, and that's what struck me too was, was like when I was first listening to it, and I'm like, so I'm currently 25, and it's just like, uh, what?
1: <laughs> yeah, but I didn't go to law what are they school. Doing? <laughs> law school is a little too intense for me back when, when I was your age.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I guess uh, perspective is everything, I suppose, right?
1: Indeed, absolutely.
0: Oh my goodness. And and that yeah and that's interesting too that, that you mentioned that um but even uh, so like in preparing for this I was listening to which actually you weren't even there um but the the FOB Four invasion um oh yes back in sixty eight which was like it, it was yeah, August
1: twenty third nineteen sixty eight is the single day of the worst casualties in the Green Beret history we had sixteen Green Berets killed in one night dozens of our indigenous troops. Uh, either daughter were wounded, fighting with great valor against the communist sappers who infiltrated the camp overnight. And uh, the battle went on, they, they hit around, depends on who you talk, to, it was after midnight for sure. It was a moonlit night. The NVA and the Viet Cong sappers that lived in the area had planned this for over a year. And so at night they snuck in, they were able to get through the wire, they even had a primary briefing in the Indigenous Troops mess hall and then they launched the attack. And we were very fortunate because they had we were right next to a mountain at FOB4, south to Nang on Highway One. And it's right up against Marble Mountain, which is several mountains with a beehive or uh, underneath it of Via Khan, which we didn't realize at the time how extensive it was, but they were there. And on that night they had a mortar position up on the hill that was dropping mortars into the camp. Fortunately, Larry Trimble was up there with his recon team and they wiped out the mortar team or there would have been more people killed. As it was, it's just there's the hit. A lot of people were drunk like John Peters. (laughs) He was too drunk. He couldn't even find his gun and William Brick, who was a young Green Beret in country, just getting ready to get assigned to a recon team and when he heard the gunfire, he put his web gear on ran outside. When he ran outside, he was gunned down by enemy gunners because they set up machine guns just for that purpose. So people came out of their hooches to kill him.
0: And that whole, that whole story, um, and so I listened to the the podcast he did with uh, John Peters and uh, Larry Trimble, and they had, you know, and like you mentioned, you, you know, one, uh, Trimble was up on Marble Mountain, and that was uh, St. Rattler that he was with?
1: Yes, sir. And, Very good. And
0: and then John, um, who was down <laughs> with without his car 15. And, and of course, the the great irony of the whole thing, which is uh, from my understanding, was the reason that a lot of he didn't bring his car 15 and a lot of other guys had their uh, guard down. Supposedly the safest base, the most secure. Yeah.
1: And John, like Doug Gottschall and several others, they all went down there for a promotion board, including John Walton. And uh, they all came down from FOB1, Pat Watkins, Spider Parks, and Spider just happened to go downtown that night. We had a safe house downtown where he went, but Pat stayed behind and they, they, they fought for, for their lives there. And of course, um, 46 years after the incident, Pat Watkins received the Distinguished Service Cross for his valor that night. Well, that's another story. But anyway, Pat's just one of my heroes, so...
0: Yeah, he, he was un- unbelievable. Um, and, and as well, going back to uh, like speaking to the the determination of of the enemy um, on Marble Mountain when things started going off, um, they they killed a couple uh, NVA soldiers or sappers, and on their headbands was written, "We came here to die." And they did. Like that—that oh, yeah. that is hard to like. I don't know. Maybe it's a, just being a civilian, or I don't know. Like the perspective is different for me. That is really difficult to comprehend. You know.
1: Well, you know, again, it's military training, and and again, they didn't know why we were really there, just to fight communism, because their people, the communist leadership, told them. The Americas is just like the French. They're here to take over our country, and they're going to enslave us. So go fight them and save our country. Oh, if you don't, we'll kill you and your family. But they don't talk about that much. But yes, and that night, most of them just had loincloths and their headband. Some had satchel charges or hand grenades, and some had their uh, trusty AK-47s. And, of course, a couple that smuggled in the machine guns. They did it all very well. I mean, they, they like I said, they had a year to plan that attack mm-hmm. and they did it on a night when there's no moon.
0: Yeah. How, how did that, that to me was like, was that, that must have been, was that planned or is that just?
1: No, that no. Sense. They planned it that way because with no moonlight, they could move better. With there's moonlight, we, our soldiers could see enemy moving.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But without the moonlight, the only light they would have would be from uh, flares, if they were able to get in the very beginning minutes of that firefight and everything, there were no flares. It was just gunfire, hand grenades, explosions from the satchel charges that they threw into the team rooms to kill the Americans.
0: And and even on that night, like referring to, and actually just in general, like from from reading all the SOG stories, like it's amazing the not only the danger of the actual missions that you guys went on, but just the close calls, like just in, in camp, like just weird, like it's just, just another day in SOG, right? Like, it's yeah. just like, what? And the, like the one that kind of comes to mind is um, when you were on uh, Rosemary's baby.
1: Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, know, you can maybe tell that one.
1: Well, Rosemary's baby was a, uh, a 176th, muskets, gunship from the AmeriCal Division. And at that time, we had two of those helicopters that were assigned to SOD. They actually lived on base with the FOB1 in Fubai. We had built a special building. They lived there, they stayed there. We got to know the crews really well. So we had a personal relationship with them. And um, one day we flew up to our Quang Tree launch site. We were gonna launch for a target, but we got rained out. So we were flying back to go back to FOB1. And so uh, Dan Cook was the executioner and, and they were called the judge and the executioner. While well, I was sitting in the co-pilot seat with Dan because previously uh, when we were socked in and couldn't run missions, they would go out and practice uh, gunning, using their rockets out in the South China Sea. Well, I, I went along with him a couple of times. And I was trying to learn how to fly a UAE. I tried with the Kingbees too, but so on this occasion, hey, Dan, can I jump in the co-pilot seat? Sure, and the co-pilot rode in the back, took a nap. Well, when we took off, the helicopter was fully loaded, had all the rockets, ammunition, and it was an older UE. And they always had a hard time lifting off in the beginning because they just didn't have the power that later renditions of the UI had. So we're taking off, we flew over a minefield and the front skid got caught in barbed wire. And so we had to stop, it literally stopped us in midair and then Dan was able to keep it uh, uh, you know, in the air, not landing in the minefield, he backed it up and one of his door gunners, a big Hawaiian, climbed out on the rail and somehow got the barbed wire untangled and at one point, I'm sitting there Dan goes, do nothing he's jogging this thing and finally got it up and got just got over the wire to get out of it but you talk about sheer utter terror hovering in an overloaded weak helicopter over a minefield yeah that was one of those moments yes sir
0: well and and you're thinking too like i've gone on missions <laughs> i've survived that and now this is how i'm gonna get blown up in a minefield on base
1: yeah, a friendly minefield, not even an enemy minefield.
0: Yeah. Well, and and even to that story as well, um, it's it's really funny how well funny, depending on ironic. your ironic. Yeah, funny with um, that you, you mentioned for that story that there were a couple corpses of uh, a couple dogs that had who who you somewhat affectionately called uh, dumb. Was it dumb shit and motherfucker? One was
1: dumb shit, and the other was mother bleeper. There we go. I don't want to offend your audience by saying... Well, oh, okay. I'll, I'll offend them that. for you. It's okay. Yeah, no. And... And they went know. out into our minefield, FOB1, and uh, and they died because they, they, were, they were killed by one of the mines that exploded. And, and then they, you're, in you're, our you're, camp there, we had three minefields. One was from the French put in, and then Special mm-hmm. Forces came and added two more additional ones to the north and to our east perimeters. And they were there just... Case there was an attack, and the dogs went out and they died.
0: Friendly reminder.
1: Well, yeah, and one of the one of the other grim experiences that didn't happen to me, but Jeffrey Jenkins and another special forces soldier were up at Mylock, and uh, Mylock was our FOB three after they closed Caisson, uh, and it was up north, <clears throat> not too far away from Caisson. They were putting in mines one day, a minefield up there, and. The mine they were putting was called a Bouncing Betsy. And this mine would, when it was triggered, it would bounce into the air two or three feet. And then it would explode with uh, shrapnel that would kill anything within a 20, 30 foot radius. On this day, uh, the SF troop that put it in um, triggered it. He was killed instantly. And the impacted explosion picked Jeff Junkins up, and he landed on top of another one. So the guy who was killed, they left him alone, and they had to work to get Jeff off uh, out of that minefield. They did. And a couple days later, we're playing poker, and we're sitting there, and Jeff goes, damn it. And he goes up to a skull, and he's like this. You know, he pulled out something, and he goes, oh, God. It was a bone, a piece of bone from the SF soldier that died two days earlier when that bomb and that, that bouncing betty went off. So that's like and the, again, the deadly side of warfare where you never hear about those kind of stories.
0: Yeah, well that and that particular story that, that's from on the ground and and that chapter is I think it's only <laughs> like five pages. It's a very short chapter. And when I was reading that one, especially that you know conclusion of that story that one stopped that one i i had to stop for a few minutes because it oh, yeah. you know you really feel the um with all you and what i really appreciate about your writing um because obviously you, you know it's it, it's kind of confusing because it, it's so tremendously impactful but you also have to remember that you know guys have died and like this is this is heavy stuff this is not light-hearted um content if you will no and and you really feel the anxiety you know like y- you really feel as as the reader that you are there with these guys because this this your storytelling ability is is so vivid and john peters as well who, who co-authored um
1: yeah thank you because john know. is just a brilliant brilliant writer. He really helped me to, uh, well, he had stories that I didn't have. He brought several to the book. Plus, he helped me rewrite some chapters where, I mean, John's one of these guys. He's so, so, so damn smart. He's scary bright. You know, you just talk to him and pick up a topic and he'll all have already researched and know about it. He, plus that, he's just a good quality friend. You know, and Jeff Jenkins, who pulled a bone chip out of his head that night, was never the same after that mission. And uh, he, uh, he had multiple injuries. He had five tours of duty in Nam. And uh, he f- killed himself in 99 through uh, VA medications. They gave him too many pills and he was, had such a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. He just, didn't, he, he just couldn't go on anymore. But he's never the same after that day.
0: Yeah, and, and that's not hard to imagine, you know, why, you know, and, and oh, yeah. that's the thing like that, that when I read that, I, I remember I actually like had my, my head in my hands for a few minutes. I'm was just like, whew, okay, take a breath and like, you know, then kind of keep going. But that's why it's just tremendous. Like your, the ability to, uh, you know, continue to, to push forward and to execute missions. And, and like you said, too, you know, you're showing up to RT Idaho, knowing that, like the previous team is wiped out and now you guys got to step in there and okay, you know, this is, this is our time now and we have to do what we, we came here to do.
1: Do the best we can. Absolutely.
0: Ridiculous. Um, one thing that I want to uh, ask you about, my memory is a little bit hazy on this one. Um, I was trying to quickly find it in the book, but I, I couldn't quite find it. Um, but uh, you, well, I'll put it to you and then correct me uh, where sure. I'm wrong. But you went on a night bright light mission. And was that a hey, you mission? That was Lynn Black. That was Lynn. OK, that Lynn was Lynn
1: went on a night a a, a bright light where they had uh, a hatchet force had been in heavy contact, heavy casualties. And during the course of the day, they were, they were able to get everybody out except for the team leader, David Gordon. And and he had a, another sergeant on the ground. I'm sorry, I'm not remembering his name now, but They were there, and they were supposed to be the last ones to get extracted. And when the last helicopter came in, they got on it. As it was lifting off, it got struck by anti-aircraft fire, flipping it over, throwing David and his counterpart, as well as some of the crew members, and I think one or two indigenous of his brew, uh, or the Montagnard tribe, which was the brew tribe. And the helicopter crashed right next to Dave where well, he broke his back on that impact. And they had, uh, they got away from the crash site and Lynn Black was uh, at Quang Tree, or maybe he's down at CCN, I forget where, but they called and said, Idaho's got to go for a bright light tonight. So Lynn did it. He went up, got the King Bee, Captain On, who was, uh, uh, of fame from picking up, uh, Pat Watkins from that one mission, he took Lynn in. They thought they're going to have to repel him, but at night captain on flew to the target because there's still some burning, uh, some burn areas from where the helicopter crashed. And he was able to get close up to the ground that the team with Lynn, they had a medic last name, Williams. And then, uh, Hep and Sal, and maybe one or two other in Didge, and they were able to get on the ground, and uh, it was just a very eerie scene, but Ling got in, got to Dave Gordon, got him and the other survivor out, and then the helicopter was lifted out with them, and uh, they got back to base, and then the next day he had to go back in to destroy the, one of the helicopters that was still intact, and again they did that under heavy enemy fire and just an incredible mission. Cause you know, this is 1969 and none of the helicopter, particularly the King, Bee, didn't have no lights, no night vision. And Captain On, years later would talk about being able to fly at night because he was familiar with the landscape from layoffs from flying so many missions as the King Bee pilot. So that was, yeah, just one of those moments in time. Then here's a sidebar, which to me is personal. <laughs> Dave Gordon never knew who saved him, and Lynn Black never knew who the guy with the broken back was. So we have the Special Operations Association that has annual meetings, It was formed by SOG members, Jim Butler was was the founding member of that, and several other guys. And we had a reunion 30, 35 years after that incident. And so Dave came up to me and said, you know, I heard you're writing a book. You got to tell my story. So what's your story, Dave? He says, yeah, we crashed, but I never knew who the American was. And in the back of my cobwebs, I'm going, this sounds familiar. And then I thought about it. I came back the next year because I'm a little bit of a slow thinker sometimes, (laughs) but it came back to me. I called Lynn Black. I said, Lynn, do you remember a mission? He says, yeah, we went in. The guy had a broken back, but I don't know who it is. I said, hey, come to the reunion this guy's going to be there we introduced them to each other at the reunion there's a little sidebar on it it was just like oh you saved my ass 35 years ago thank you let me buy you a drink
0: (laughs) that's so cool well and and that goes to show as well like how odd it must be as well like you guys work together and then you guys leave and oh yeah that that's it you know like you you Probably might not have seen. I mean, I'm sure a lot of those guys you probably haven't seen. Well, now, but from then, uh, like 30 ish years before you see. Oh, yeah,
1: because A, we couldn't talk about it. Uh, Mm -hmm. And in my case, I got some guys' phone numbers, like the Frenchman, Lynn Black, Spider Parks. But see, Spider was still in. So once I left the Army, Spider continued on with his career. Pat Watkins continued on with their career. And I lost contact with these guys. But eventually, over time, we re- reconnect with some of the key people. And yes, there are those I haven't seen since the war, not to mention our South Vietnamese. I mean, you know, April 30th, 1975 came along. was just a horrible day because that's when Saigon fell and the South Vietnam War ended so ingloriously, thanks to our politicians. And all the guys who kept me alive, the King Bee pilots, team members, they were all staying back. Hep got out. And I didn't realize that until 20 years later and we were able to reconnect. Wow. But um, as to Sal, uh, Tuan, Doti, Ti Kuang, Chao, Cao, I never, never saw any of them after I left camp, 1970. And that and, just weighs and, heavy on your heart.
0: And, and do you know what hap- ever happened to them or just nothing?
1: Well, we lost Sal uh, eight or nine years ago on Valentine's Day. Hmm. Do Ti died five years ago and uh we never heard uh chow went to another fob and he was on a mission got killed on a mission down there so by that time chow was all 17 years old after running with us for two years from 15 up to 17. wow oh yeah
0: yeah yeah and i mean getting kind of getting back to um you know some of those missions that you guys went on um as far as well, what was kind of, again, you know, humorous, um, you know, the, those, Hey, you missions, was it, Hey, you or Hey y'all was it, it was, it's, I guess, depends who you at, whatever accent yeah. you are referred to. Yeah. But, um, were you called on any of those missions?
1: Well, there were, there were a couple, like, for example, we had, um, a bright light, so we geared up for the bright light, go up to the launch site. We're actually on the helicopters flying into the target. And, they, and the weather got so bad, as well as the anti-aircraft that they canceled it. So we were on standby. I never, as a team leader, physically ran a bright light mission. Lynn did, he, they, he and Doug ran several, and with uh, just an amazing results, always under enemy fire. And, um, you know, a bright light is a good mission to miss. <laughs> <laughs> I was just right. lucky, our number never came up except for that one time. And when it did, we were, like I said, we were on the choppers heading out that way.
0: Well, and, and cause I mentioned a couple of times, but maybe, I mean, you always do a better job describing it, but what is a Hey U mission? Like what is well, it? Well,
1: you know, during 19, well, in my case, particularly by November 68, we had lost so many teams, either they were wiped out or team members were killed or, or, or wounded. So they had to go through the rebuilding process. Then there were rotations where men would serve their tour of duty and go home. And then some guys, their time on teams had expired and they would go to another assignment. So by November, our team was one of the few operational teams in camp. So they said, hey, we need to get a team on the ground. Here's your target. Well, it'd be a target folder and we wouldn't even fly a visual reconnaissance or anything, they would just, Covey would go out. Covey was our forward air controller we pick a primary, a secondary, and an alternate LZ, and we'd go out and try to get in. Well, there are times when in the morning we'd go out and get shot out of the primary, the secondary, the alternate, go back, eat lunch, the Kingbys would refuel. Here's a new target. Try this. And that happened like two or three days in a row. We kept getting shot out. Then we finally got in, and then we had, um, and once we were on the ground, we got socked in by bad weather. we were literally on the ground for five days after they came for us with dogs by the hundreds. And we were able to escape and evade. And uh, it was during that time, that mission, when we were up on the mountaintop, we heard the Russians come in. We heard them on the FM radio and they came in with an aerial resupply that we witnessed three or four mountains away. And they lit up the side of the mountains so the Russians knew where to drop the supplies. So it's just like, it's, this is like the Twilight Zone kind of stuff, you know. You're in the middle of a jungle. All of a sudden, the side of the mountain lights up. So I'm going through the radio, and then I can hear the guy talking in Russian. And uh, they came in. I tried to get tack airs. So we could blow those commies out of the sky, but uh, we couldn't get in. They're like cops. You're never, they're never around when you need them.
0: <laughs> so I got about 48 questions just from that couple sentences that you put out there. So I got, I got to ask you. So, just kind of go into a little bit more detail, like on that particular mission. So, because I, I think we also have to um, describe how significant that was that you actually had confirmation of Russian presence over there.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, we knew they were there. We had intel reports, and that was like one where we had firsthand evidence. Not only did we hear them, but we saw them. And the fact that they were doing aerial resupply of enemy troops in layoffs. That's a strong indicator that, uh, that they were there. Years later, we learned that there were 3,000 plus that were there and they had, there's a, uh, on YouTube today, there's a YouTube out there of the Russian secret war in Vietnam. And they had a reunion, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago. And they all got together. I mean, those are still alive. And they were talking about their secret war and they were very sad because they had eight or nine of their Russians that got killed uh, during the secret war my only disappointment was i wish there were more <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> wow and so on on that particular mission that so when you you identified or, or confirmed the the presence and the resupply um yeah. by the russians that was at the tail end of of your time on the ground it was actually our,
1: our it happened on the second night that we were in and the first day and that was in the in the middle of the sequence of going in getting shot out three times. So this day, um, Spider Parks was flying Covey. He found a good LZ for us. We went in and I got the team online and we went way up this hill. And normally we would wait, like we move 10 minutes and wait 10 minutes. But on this day, I just wanted to get away from the LZ. And we pushed it really hard. We came to a major trail, crossed it, got on the other side, Sal put up a wiretap because the CIA told us to always wiretap and record because the NVA phone lines were open. Even though we couldn't hear anything, they would amplify it a hundred times and they would get intel off of that. So we had a wiretap going. We had a, uh, uh, an ambush set up with Claymore Mines. We had a kill zone. So the person in the kill zone would live. We would knock him out with C4. Then everybody else in the formation would be dead and we would kill anybody else, and we had claymores on the side, claymores behind us. We were all set up. They didn't know we were there. They were walking down the trail like it was Sunday morning. They had their AKs on their shoulders. We saw officers, and spider flew back. I gave him the code. He said, one hour, I'll be on the LZ. We'll have a POW. And he said, I'm at 10,000 feet. I can't see the mountain you're on. So pack up and get to high ground. So we had to pack up, we pulled down the wiretap, pulled back the uh, ambush, we moved out. And close to the last light, we could hear the dogs coming after us. They were down on the LZ. And they didn't realize how far we had gone. So we moved into a stream bed and went up the stream bed. So it'd be more difficult for the dogs to follow us. When you set up a perimeter, we moved for about an hour at night which was unusual for us. Then we went up the river, uh, that little stream bank, about 10, 15 feet up this bank. I was facing the bank, and then we had set up our perimeter for the night. And that was the time when the uh, NVA walked past us. There's two of them, one with a lantern, and his partner, and our team didn't see him, because I was the only guy facing the stream. They went up, and when he came back down, um, the lanterns have run out of fuel. So they went back to base because Sal had climbed a tree and could tell us that there were hundreds of soldiers looking for us and we could hear the dogs and he could see the lanterns further down the valley that they were looking for us. And that's why we pushed harder that night to try to get as far away from the LZ and the ambush site as possible. And uh, and when they walked past us, Hep, my interpreter, coughed. (laughs) And when he coughed, The one NVA heard that and they stopped. And the guy crawled up the bank, like only when the wind blew. He crawled up the embankment and he touched my boot that night. And I'm sitting there with my gun pointed to him. And he waited until the wind blew. I could hear him catch his breath, when he touched my boot. I hear, and then when the wind blew, he went back down the hill, then they left. and At first light, we were out of there. And we moved all day up that hill, got to the top. And at night, that's when the Russians flew over. So it's was was one day and one day in hell. (laughs)
0: And and I got to I got to ask you about that moment. Um, So you're you're on your back. And I'm sitting
1: sitting back against a tree. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And also describe as well, like we have to remember that you're not like in a city. You're in the middle of triple canopy jungle at night.
1: And, And And you move your hand in front of your face. You can't see it. You can feel it. And that's what the guy would fire the lantern. I could see them. I could have shot both of them, but we were playing hide and go seek. Mm-hmm. We were hiding there were seeking. We certainly didn't want to give the enemy any indication where we were. So our silence was a key strategic uh method at that time.
0: Well, and then also you have several hundred on your tail coming up. And as soon as like as soon as you would open fire, then then they would know where you are. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so you're, you're, you're sitting there
1: <laughs> and, and he only and moved, he only moved when the wind blew
0: to conceal that little,
1: that little upcline. And then when he did touch the boot, I, I, had my feet spread with my car 15 pointed. Had he done anything sudden I would have just fired one round because this way they, the enemy wouldn't tell if it was an AK or if it was us, but he didn't. And I didn't fire him.
0: And what what is your like when when he came up on you like that? Because it sounds like he surprised himself. Oh yeah,
1: Yeah. well he knew we were there because Hepa coughed it. But again, we're all in dark seclusion, Mm -hmm. in the triple canopy, and we're on that on that creek bed or the bed that leads down to that little stream, and uh, there's overgrowth, so there's no light except for lightning bugs. But the lightning bugs wouldn't light up. At that point, they had slowed down. Earlier in the night, the lightning bugs were lighting up. We could see for like a foot or two way. They're the biggest lightning bugs i ever seen in my life. But when he was there, they weren't around, thankfully.
0: And, and what's your uh, hypothesis on why he didn't pull the trigger on you even?
1: Well, I, I think he came up looking for us. And mm-hmm. wherever his AK was, it may have been on his back because he obviously was crawling up. And he couldn't swing it around. Had there been, like I said, had there been any sudden movement, I would have fired one around. He may have thought that, well, if I'm in, if I'm in Johnny Meyer's seat, what would I do? Well, maybe he's got a gun pointed at me. So he backed down and left to go tell tell higher headquarters.
0: That's crazy. Like, I oh, like I, don't, I don't even know what to say to that other than just like, like to, because you know, I, I, you know, in, in your story, reading that, like, You just can't even really comprehend. Like, just knowing that it must be so strange. I think, kind of, what I'm trying to struggle to articulate here is just like that is such a surreal moment because it's it's your life. Like, this is this could be it under different circumstances. Like, this could be over right now.
1: Yeah, because the time frame expanded. You know, a second becomes two or three minutes. like that and it just seemed like it took forever for it to, to pan out but and you talk about surreal I mean years ago my daughter I was taking my my oldest girl my youngest girl to high school and I had my book across the fence there and you know they're young kids we don't I never talk to the kids unless they ask questions about what what you do in a war daddy and even then what well, by then the 20 years was up I could tell them, yeah I fought in a secret war yeah <laughs> but for the first 20 years, I couldn't tell my folks or anybody, you know, but uh, in this case, she picked up the book and she's curious. I said, well, go to page, I think it's 212 in the edition that we had then. And that was a page where that guy came up and touched my boot. And so she goes, oh my God, and she was surprised. And then later, um, I forget where I was going, but I stopped and I read the paragraph myself. And it's like, you know, had I not been there, I would have questioned this story. <laughs> it's so damn surreal, like you said, and, and it's just like I hadn't, I hadn't reread it in in years. Mm-hmm. But through my daughter, you know, kind of like we went back. Anyways, enough of that.
0: <laughs> well, and, and that's what's so ridiculous about it is because, like, if you were to make uh, one of your books, if you're just to make that as like a Netflix series and just right. one episodes, one chapter people would be like, ah, I don't really buy it. This, this is kind of, it's kind of, it, it's almost so incredibly absurd that it comes across as like tacky action movie writing. Cause it's just like the guy, yeah, the guy touched his boot and then but you're like, what? <laughs> that actually, yeah. that, no, that was real. It just, and you know, it's the truth is stranger than fiction. Uh, you know, a lot of the time. Oh
1: yeah, absolutely. No question about it. Yeah. That's why I'm not a big fiction guy. <laughs> Plus there's a friend of mine in his book that I want to read it just to see how he writes, you know.
0: And you know, one of the things that, you know, we, I, you know, with the, with the two dogs that met their demise on the uh, on the minefield, um, I think <laughs> you describe them as mangy mutts, which I always Indeed. kind of gets a laugh. Um, but there's many times where, you know, and, and in this story in particular, where they're using dogs to track you guys down where you refer to dogs and not very nice terms and you, and you understand why, because when you hear the dogs coming out, I mean, like my heart sinks when you're reading it. And for you guys, like when you would hear like, Oh crap, we got dogs now.
1: Oh yeah. And we carried uh, black pepper and the patterned mace and we put it down on the trail. So, hoping that when the dogs hit it with their nose, it would foul their noses enough that they couldn't uh, pursue us, at least through the dogs. And uh, of course, the Frenchman had the best resolution to uh, dogs. He, they had trackers on his team. He went back with a 22 with a silencer and the dog came over the hill, put around right between his eyes, killed it hit instantly. He put down a toe popper. So when the dog handler came up, it was an NVA, he hit the toe popper. And uh, blew off his foot, so that's the classical way of dealing with trackers, and 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 trackers that were the enemy. My favorite dog story.
0: Yeah that that I remember that one. That was so yeah the, <laughs> yeah Doug was yeah he's an interesting character.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely the Frenchman, one of my heroes. Oh my God,
0: yeah, and I, I'm just trying to think. Um, I know it just because just you know it's so cool to be. Um, Because I've heard you so much on on Jocko's podcast and then through your your books and and work and so it's I know every I'm kind of sitting here and I'm like okay yeah yeah yeah. get the get the stars out like just kind of you know be present here but um, as far as um, actually how about we do this how about uh, tell us about Christmas Day
1: oh. Yeah, well, that was one of those, another one of the missions they came up. They wanted to get us in on Christmas Day. um, And we had, you know, again, it was December. And because of Tet Offensive in 1968, which began at the end of January of 68, there was a great deal of concern from headquarters as to the next Tet Offensive, if it would occur in 69. And so um, we were supposed to get inserted on a mountaintop. And then go for an area reconnaissance. And instead, uh, the the King Bee, when we were going, we were flying up a valley and we came to a small knoll that was very steep on the south, west, and the north side. And uh, they inserted us there. We were on the ground. We went to the east, made contact, came back, and we were on that knoll. It had a lot of elephant grass, which is elephant grass like 10, 12 feet tall. And we had contact with the enemy to the east and to the south. And we threw some hand grenades which ignited the elephant grass. Well, eventually the NVA saw the fire and they set more fires because the wind was coming up, the, up that valley and it's pushing the flames up to us on top of this little knoll. And it was too steep to go to the west, too steep to the north and south where the flames were coming from. And eventually we had flames from the south and the west. And everything was quiet to the northeast. But Lingos, if it's quiet, they probably got an ambush. And about that time, uh, the Frenchman was on another mission and he was scanning the dial. He heard them talking, his interpreter told him, they're talking about R.T. Idaho. The NVA knew our team by name and they were setting up an ambush for us on the Northeast. So we didn't go, we stayed there. The last minute, um, a Kingby came in Captain Tuong, he came in and flew down to the top of that knoll and the prop wash pushed the flames back. And we were able to get on the chopper and we left off. The hill was just overcome with flames. And of course, earlier, when you read Lynn Black's book, WTF, Whiskey Tango, Fot Truck, <laughs> a few minutes before the Bee got there, I had a leech that had climbed up my pant leg that was very near Mr. Happy. So in the middle of this firefight and fighting the fire, to drop my pants in the middle of this firefight to get that leech away for doing any brain damage. So that's just one of those little sidebars. But uh, Captain Tuong, had he not been there, we would have been crispy critters in a few minutes. We all had singed hair from the burns from the fire, because they were fighting the fire by trying to blow the fire back down the hill with C four. Yeah, like that's Christmas Day, in nineteen sixty
0: eight. Yeah, Merry Christmas. And, you
1: know, again, you're talking about. Uh, personal feelings, I had a shower that night. And after I came back from the shower, this little cheap radio was playing Silent Night. And I really, I stood there, you know, first of all, it's Christmas. I knew what Christmas was like in Trenton with my family. Missed that. But I said, you know, I don't know if I'm going to see my 23rd birthday or not. This shit's getting really close. We had Thanksgiving Day, a couple other missions. We barely got out alive. And I didn't think I was going to see 23rd. And my birthday was January the nineteenth.
0: Yeah, and, and and like to me, like you know, well, okay, first of all, you, you dropping your pants in the middle of a firefight is just like that is so. I don't know if like I don't want to be say like that's cool because like I don't know, it's kind of like a lame thing. Well, if I it, if I like, had taken
1: the time to officially moon the NVA, <laughs> then it would have been cool. As it was, I just wanted to get that damn leech away from Mister Happy.
0: I can't. I, which reminds me, I, I can't remember who it was. Um, I believe that this was from on the ground. Uh, I can't quite remember, but uh, on getting um, extracted out, I think they were on the the King Bee at that point, and one of the Sog guys gave the the NVA the middle finger as they were getting oh, yeah. it out. I'm like that. That was it.
1: the the troll, George Sternberg.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, because he was in on the bright light trying to find Idaho when Idaho got wiped out and when they, he put the other team members on there and the NBA shot him and he turned around and killed the NBA and he gave him the finger.
0: Yeah. Something else. Oh, just yeah. another day in song, right? <laughs> Talking smack in the middle of a firefight. And yeah. And anyway, just, just kind of getting back to, um, you know that christmas day i mean so like what is i mean and you kind of described it but i just kind of want to uh, press you a little bit further on it like so you like you said you know thanksgiving pretty scary you have a couple missions in between again pretty close call and then christmas uh, on that extraction that was i mean i guess that's about as close as you can get really um and you're thinking, you know, my birthday's in three weeks, less than three weeks, and I might not make it. Like, are you thinking, you know, I got to get that No, I just, out of here, no I just,
1: I was really, um, in my mind, after what we've been through, I just uh, that today was so close. You know, Christmas Day had been so close. Thanksgiving uh, other times. Um, I was just being doubtful for a moment. And uh, fortunately, I was wrong
0: yeah and, and and even it's just like you know like there's that you know the adage you know the, the the nine lives cat nine lives right it's just like by then you must have been thinking i think i've used up like 15 or 16 like we're, we're oh, worth yeah. a nine
1: <laughs> i yeah again it's only by the grace of the lord that we survived that it well, wasn't and- me it's was just just the way things unfold just so very lucky and very fortunate
0: and obviously, I mean, you, you mentioned before in the hat that you're wearing as well, you know, says it all, uh, but the, the, the air support that you guys had, what absolutely baffles me is the, like saying danger close, like just doesn't, it, it's like danger on top of you. Like, it's not close. It's on like, and the, the skill of the, of the pilots. Wow. Like they're coming in and you can actually see. I can't remember. I think it might have been Lynn when he was saying on one gun run. Um, what well, was Lynn? And,
1: and then one of my, my last mission in the Ashaw Valley, we had an A-1 skybreeder made a, a gun run. And he came back for another gun run. we He did the gun run. And then he turned towards me. He turned on the side. I'm standing here looking into the cockpit. He was so close, I could tell you he was smoking a Philly cheroot. <laughs>
0: Like that is just. Oh yeah. That's, that's another those- one of those surreal. Like, and and to not, like the fact that there wasn't a blue on blue from all those gun runs. Like the skill of the pilots to keep you guys safe and and take down the enemy is just.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, affluent. we mentioned at the beginning of the program, there's 50 green berets that are missing in action today from the Secret War alone. Well, we've documented at least 83 aviators helicopter crews, A1, Phantom jets, and uh, our gunships, all of them. No, you know, they died supporting us and they just had incredible value. In fact, there's a book out now, it's called We Save Sog Souls by uh, Roger Lockshear. And he has this passage in there where it was a gunship from the 101st Airborne in 1968. And 68 was our worst year in terms of casualties And the the war escalated for us because Johnson uh, had the bombing hall. And then they came south with more anti aircraft. And Roger and his gunship was in the middle of a gun run. And Covey Pat Watkins told the helicopter pilot, hey, your engines on fire. And Roger looked back said sure enough. (laughs) But he kept firing his machine gun at the communists on the ground that was shooting at him and our team. And he kept firing Until he crashed and was knocked on conscious. That's one of my favorite all time passages because dedication to the mission, like you're saying, the air crew members who uh, some of them who dedicated their lives to to saving us on the ground. It's a classic example. Uh,
0: Speaking to that, um, I was going to check the book, but just remind me um, on that uh, Oscar eight mission with uh, Pat Watkins. Um, when they were being lifted out, or I guess when the, the King B was coming in to lowering, they picked the guys up, they picked them up. And, and that's when Pat noticed that it was, there was only one pilot. pilot. Um, Captain On. That's right. Yeah, and Captain they, On was
1: there. He was the one that took Lynn Black in on the bright light a couple of months later. And he came in with the King Bee and hovered, settled into a bomb crater so that Pat would have enough leverage to throw his people into the king bee. And then don't forget when they left it wasn't over mm-hmm. because on had the jute around the anti-aircraft akak that they were shooting trying to shoot him down because earlier in the day they had shot down two other helicopters.
0: And that's an accurate description like he literally was juting out yeah and when they returned back to to base the thing that he said was well you know it, it was really da- like he understood this was really dangerous and he understood a couple of choppers got shot down so I didn't want to co-pilot with me because if someone was going to die at least it would just be me and and just like that that matter of fact because he was he's right like logically he, he actually that that's correct but to be able to say that and and do that, like, yeah, I'm, I'm just and he acted on and, it. Yeah. yeah. And if I die, I you know, I die. And at least it'll just be me. Like, yeah. that's that really is something like that is something that like really stops you in your tracks. Oh, yeah. Because that just hits you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Unbelievable. And 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 that's the thing. Like, there's so many of those stories. And even when they're um, this might have been lit. Well, I guess this probably happened to multiple units, but when the gun runs, they're, they're coming in so close that the teams are getting hit by like stones and, and debris from the bullets.
1: Like, well, and don't forget, I, mean, I think a lot of the team members at some point, the gun runs with the helicopter gun would be so close. Like mm-hmm. in my case, uh, on Echo 4, I can remember we were heading to the helicopter and they made a gun run and a shell casing from the helicopter from their m60s landed in the back of my neck couple of them and i'm going ah because it's hot yeah you know it's burning your skin at first the first reaction was damn what is it oh i'm really pissed you're burning my skin i can't get it we're trying to move through the jungle and everything we're firefighting and uh that's wait wait that's a good guy no problem i'll take the pain thank you
0: (laughs) yeah thank you i'm fine with a a few more time
1: you know precious moments indeed yeah, those are the muskets, again, the judge and the executioner were uh, putting down really danger, close suppression fire so the King bee could hover so we could get to the King bee to get on to get the hell out because we were down to our last magazine, last grenade.
0: And you kind of mentioned it a few times throughout, but I, I just think, you know, kind of go into a little bit greater detail. But you mentioned as well that oftentimes, especially because you're. Often in well, it's all triple canopy jungle, but sometimes you might be able to find like an open area. And, right, there would be yeah, open areas. And
1: we were in Cambodia, it was wide open, right? Some parts of Cambodia you could see two or three hundred yards, and we could see the NVA running towards us.
0: Yeah, that that feels good. Yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> and, but when you're in, in the cases where you're in uh triple canopy trying to get extracted out, they would drop down uh, a wire. So that rope. You guys could a rope, a rope with,
1: with a D could. ring on the end, it'd be a hundred or hundred and fifty feet long, depending. And there'd be a D ring on the end of it in the early days. And then we just had a rope with that D ring, and then we had a rope swiss seat but had a D ring. We hook into it, they lift up, and then we had a D ring on our harness mm-hmm. that we're supposed to hook into so that if we got shot or if we fell out, or, or we would still be attached to it physically.
0: And was there a mission? where you, you had an, was that you where you had an issue where you weren't clipped in to the D-ring? Right. Yeah. Can you describe that one for us?
1: Yeah. Um, we had been uh, on a, on a. I had repelled into the target and there were enemy down there. So we, I gave them the sign that we're canceling the mission. And so I unhooked the King B-Left. I was down on the ground for a little bit. They came back, hooked me up. And and as I was pulling out, the enemy were shooting at the helicopter and me, and I didn't have time to hook the the, uh, D-ring up here. And so they lifted up, and then when they started shooting, I got pulled through the trees a little bit. I was ricocheting off the trees. So my arms were kind of cut up uh, from the rope. And uh, well, at some point, we're going along. I didn't hook in, and I went to shift arms because of the pain. And we hit an air pocket, flipped me upside down. And all my web gear, my backpack came down and choked me out. And so the, the Swiss seat went down on my knees, had my legs spread, and then it went down on my feet. And I, I gave Henry King the signal at the, in the He's up in the, uh, in the King beat. And uh, I was passing, I discovered As I passed out, I saw the newspaper headline with my death I was pissed because it was below the fold on the front page and said, so Local boy dies in war in Vietnam. I said, Shit, I'm going to die in Laos. Don't tell anybody how ridiculous this is. And I passed out. And fortunately, Captain Tuong from Christmas Day had been lowering me in what I didn't realize. And I landed in elephant grass. I fell 10, 15 feet, something like that. Henry King came out, took off all my web gear, picked me up and threw me in a the chopper, and then we left.
0: And they left your web gear there.
1: Web gear, my SOG knife, my CAR 15, but Henry just was wanted to keep me alive, and the Kingby guys were yelling at him to get the hell out. So he jumped in and he just took off.
0: Yeah, that's surreal. <laughs> and because you're, because I guess you're upside down and you're starting to to fade, you know, consciousness. And so you must be thinking, I was literally you're, being choked
1: up on my web gear.
0: Yeah, and so you must be thinking you're. Really high up because you didn't oh, notice yeah. that you're being lowered, but
1: yeah. No, I figured that's this is the end, my friend. Like the door said, This is the end, my only friend. The end, I thought it was there,
0: yeah. And that was in uh, was that 69?
1: 68, November 68.
0: 69. 68 so in that was a time
1: where we had a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of missions and we had to get on the ground to uh step up to the plate because they just needed to know what was going on.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and so that kind of lends itself to this question. Yeah, there you go. Um, what I'm kind of curious about, so I, I think maybe too, just as, uh, just kind of for my own clarification as well, and maybe the listeners too, um, but it kind of, I guess, a two-part question, were like the enemy that you were facing, because you mentioned NVA and I think we've mentioned the the Viet Cong VC as well.
1: Yeah, Viet Cong, were in country. We didn't deal with those across the fence. It was strictly North Vietnamese Army troops that were highly trained.
0: Okay. And what I'm curious about is, so so now maybe just remind us too, uh, because you were there, you left and came back. Right. And so uh, maybe just um, before I kind of ask the the question I want to ask, uh, just describe us like when, how long you were there for both. The- oh,
1: I was there the from team. April 68 to April 69. And when I left the team, Lynn Black became the 1-0. So I wasn't worried about the team. Plus the Frenchman had come over. So I knew the team was in good hands. Mm-hmm. Um, went back to Fort Devons. I was there for five months. I hated every second of it. Went and got orders cut to go back, specifically to CCN. I got back, got on the team. Lynn and I took turns being a 1-0 for a short period of time. And then he went on to some other projects, and I was there until April seventy. I got out of the army April twenty fifth, nineteen seventy. Okay.
0: And what I'm curious about is, from the time that you got there, uh, through the first first tour, then uh, second tour, by the time that you left in the seventy, um, I'm trying to think out how to. It might be a bit awkward the way that I phrase this, but I'm sure you'll you'll be able to answer it. Did you? notice a difference in the determination or or the lethality of, of the enemy. And, and kind of what I'm getting at as well is because they're also, we have to remember the Tet Offensive as well, and that kind of changed the narrative of the war a bit. And so I'm wondering, did you notice anything different about the enemy from when you were there to when you left?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, first of all, the Tet Offensive had no bearing on us. That was strictly in country had an impact and you know, again, regardless of what Walter Cronkite reported, we had devastated, we the Americans and our South Vietnamese allies had devastated the Viet Cong. They were never the same after the Tet, but nobody says that, but they were, that's a fact of the matter. Across the fence in the secret war, we were more impacted by Johnson's decision to stop bombing North Vietnam. So the anti-aircraft weapon came south, They had sappers designed to track us. Well, by 1970, they had battalions of sappers. So they increased the efforts against us immensely. Uh, Their tactics improved. They also had a spy in our headquarters, which we never learned about until after the war. And uh, there's all kinds of repercussions. So the war intensified, they became more aggressive, and they specifically wiped out teams and they killed the Americans and left the indigenous alive. So that was, yes, we saw uh, an increase in enemy tactics and they're always trying to, to, to get us one way or the other.
0: And and that spy, was that at CCN?
1: No, it was down at SOG headquarters. It's okay. in John Plaster's book. He has a pictorial on SOG. And at near the end, there's a picture of the spy standing there with Speedy Gaspard, Major Speedy Gaspard. Speedy didn't know, but this guy was... Uh, uh, he received the highest award that North Vietnam could give after the war for his years of service as a spy in our headquarters.
0: Wow. And, yeah. and, and that was unknown until much later? After the war, yeah. Oh, wow. So, yep. uh,
1: geez. so besides having a tenacious enemy, we had spies and other things were going on. I've done some other stories about SOG being compromised. We can come back another day and talk about that in more detail. I've got a pending meeting now, I'm sorry to say.
0: Okay. Yeah, no problem. We're having too um, much
1: fun here, Marcus.
0: Yes, yes, I know. Um, so in that case, uh, j- just to, to wrap it up then, uh, yep. very briefly, um, I just want to get your opinion uh, just as far as, as closing remarks. Because um, now, since being on Jocko's podcast, I mean, y- your, your story and the story of, of SOG in general has been exposed to so many different people. Um, and that's why I'm so fortunate to be able to have you on today and then now your your own podcast that you host um, Sodcast. I just kind of want to get your opinion on it must be so interesting to kind of go back and, and talk to guys that you maybe did uh, work with and guys that you didn't um, but what has that experience been like for you just recently? Oh for
1: me it's just a I mean First and foremost, Jocko Willing, we are indebted to him because he's committed to this program. He's paying for all the costs, the cameras, the recording, any flight arrangements, hotels. This all comes through Jocko Willing Productions and his team. It's all coordinated through him. I just do the interviews. I send everything back to his right-hand man, Echo Charles. The Echo posted. So right now, as of today, we have 24. And, and our program is called SOGCAST, S O G C A S T, one word. And they first come up as audio podcasts. They're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts for audio. And then Jocko and, and Echo Charles have begun posting the uh, YouTubes. So the first three episodes are now up as YouTube. So episode 001 now has 145,000 views. Episode two is over 100,000, and episode three is over 70,000. So there's been a great reception to that, and uh, I'm just honored to do it. So right now we have 24 interviews in the can. 17 audios have been posted, today is March 1st, 2022. And as we all sit back and pray for the Ukrainians to kick some commie ass here, uh, we continue to march forward with our conference, with the communists in South Vietnam in the secret war.
0: Yes, sir. Well, and thank you so much for being here, John. I mean, this is an absolute pleasure for me. It is such a cool experience, and thank you so well, much for, for being here. It's my here.
1: pleasure. And, and um, for part of my reason to do it was just because you've got a new audience
0: mm-hmm.
1: and to get the story out to as many people as we can because they have to learn about our history and the value therein. and. And Green Berets like Mike Glover and the other Navy SEALs that have all improved their game today for the tactics. I mean, we've lost good men there, but they're doing continue that to be the tip of the spear wherever our government sends them. And so it's a long tradition. It's proud to be able to talk to other people. And thank you for your interest in getting our story out. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. And I really hope to have you on again. And I really hope to meet you in person as well. Okay,
1: really great. We'll thing come back hear. and talk about the spy someday.
0: That's yeah, absolutely. Yes, sir. Thank you so much, John.
1: Airborne Marcus. Thank you. Have a good day.